Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Godzilla Pod War Hour. My name is Michael Kelly, and with us as always, Mr. Nathan Allen Bear. Nathan. Happy to be here, Mike. Happy, exhilarated, excited to talk about um, Gorath. 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 Which, uh, you know, they they like to send me ads for that. You know, that, Viagra, Cialis, Gorath, you know, the... (laughs) The, My sandbox uh, <laughs> is filled to the brim with Gorath ads. Gorath, the veritable uh, lump of coal in the classic Toho <laughs> sci-fi yeah. stocking, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, watching this, you can be only as about as enthusiastic as a Shiro Honda was when directing this movie. It's like, well, Tanaka, you know... Needs another one. Let me just beat this out so that way I can, you know, get to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Fall asleep. Um, Yeah, no, it's fine. It's 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 one of the very last, uh, I guess, if you could even call it a Godzilla movie. I mean, it's technically a kaiju movie because technically a kaiju appears in it, albeit for three minutes, Um, depending on what cut you're watching. To give people just a, a basic glancing over of, of what we're talking about, Gorath is not a monster per se. It is the name of the collapsed, like ultra dense core of a star, right? That has, you know, it's become a red giant. And now it's imploded, and now it's now it's just the core. It's a, yeah, uh, it's on a collision course with Earth. Yes, and they um, only have a matter of years to solve this. Yes, they have two years. Yeah. And when I heard about this, you know, I, you know, this is my first time watching it, but you know, de- you know, over a decade ago, you know, well, well over a decade, we're talking like almost two decades ago when I first heard of Gorath, I thought it was going to be like Armageddon. Right. Well, yes. As, as I was plan. saying, that yeah. I, I thought the whole plan was just going to be them going into outer space to blow up Gorath. And that yeah. turns out to be really not part of the plan at all and the actual plan is beyond ludicrous and like in a way i think ultimately more devastating than actually having gorath bullseye planet earth um but we'll get into that in a minute um to give some context to you know what we're talking about here gorath is you know, it's, it's released in March uh, 21st, 1962 in Japan. And it's part of that experimental period where Toho is still sort of like trying to figure out like, because it's all, all of this is pre King Kong versus Godzilla. And, and it's this period where Godzilla is on ice, literally in Godzilla raids again, he's buried in ice. And at this time, he's still... He's about to come back because, you know, King Kong versus Godzilla is very soon at this point. But he's still so they're they're making movies like The Mysterians and Battle in Outer Space and, you know, Mothra and things like this, um, where they're they're sort of seeing how far they can expand this thing without going back to pull on the Godzilla meal chain as far as basically what it is. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these movies, a lot of the movies that, that I just listed were um, made by a, a Japanese Air Force pilot uh, named Jojiro Akami. And he kind of, he, he sort of took the, the impetus for this sort of like B, B 
well, B-movies. They're certainly all B-movies, but like this kind of weird space-related tangent in like the classic Toho vault. And yeah. he came up with the ideas, again, Mysterians, Battle in Outer Space, and Gorath, um, uh, as well as, you know, like Space Amoeba. So yeah. like... He, he's kind of responsible for, for the germ, for the, generating the idea. And then, you know, uh, you know, the usual suspects kind of took over. Yeah. Um, but that's... So, uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is this is a full Toho, like classic Toho production. The money is still there. Yeah. Uh, it's still on the screen. Um, the miniatures are absolutely first rate. Yeah. Uh, in this movie they're they're you know the destruction sequences are better in this movie than definitely a lot of the latter Godzilla movies even in the Sh the Showa uh movies you know yeah. with the exception of like Terror of Mechagodzilla where they really go nuts at the end of that right. but like they just blow up the studio <laughs> they just they're just like well we won't need the studio anymore here's 10 sticks of dynamite make sure the cameras are rolling boys whoopee <laughs> whoopee <laughs> <laughs> um so every movie studio has an old prospector on it that, exactly. that just, oh i've been here since 1910 <laughs> been waiting for this moment for years jiggins gus jiggins g-i-i <laughs> uh that's a that's a reference to a will ferrell sketch from saturday night live that was cut it was never, <laughs> never even aired so you know we're getting we're getting very very much obscure here and that that goes along with with gorath because we're it's not even bottom of the barrel like i i've made jokes about you know breaking the barrel up and like we're warming our hands on the fire of the barrel this yeah. isn't even that this is like a scientist with a electric micron microscope is detecting bits of particulate matter in the atmosphere of that there may have been a barrel in here at some point or at least pieces of wood <laughs> you know that's so that's where we are <laughs> in the bottom of the barrel for Toho at this point you, you cannot watch this movie by the oh. way <laughs> can't see it there's no way of watching this so in a way this entire episode is pointless and Nate and yeah. I could just make up the story and yeah. it will in several places because the narrative yeah. is confounding. I, I will <laughs> say that the ending scene between the walrus and Emperor Palpatine was amazing. And yeah, <laughs> that yeah. showdown, that showdown. I mean, you know, I, I'd say. <laughs> so. And then when Gandalf appears. <laughs> I mean, this this movie, like... It's so little seen and so, like, so little is known about it that yeah. for years, and I think I may have even said this on the show, um, I thought that Maguma, which is the, the walrus, uh, kaiju, yeah. I thought that Maguma was somehow, like, the evil captain of Gorath and, like, steering yeah, Gorath. Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought. You know, years and years of reading Godzilla blogs, and that's what I thought the plot was somehow. And this all happens because none of these movies were available to us, you know, and half of them still aren't legally. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the 
in the early aughts when you're on, you know, stomp on Tokyo monsters dot com or uh, Toho Kingdom or one of the you know many, many other, you know, geo sites, <laughs> geo cities, whatever. I believe it's geo cities. Geo cities. Yes. <laughs> That's uh, let's keep things pro values here. Yes, <laughs> you know, I, I I thought that they go to the 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 planet and they're trying to you know detonate a bomb to blow Gorath up and then a right. walrus appears, right. you know, to raise the stakes. And this kind of does that, but not really. And uh, you know, to quote yeah. from from uh, Mr. August Ragoon, uh, his book on E.J. Subaraya. Uh, he said, quote, that Tanaka also insisted that a giant monster appears somewhere in the proceedings. So a colossal walrus appears in a brief reprieve from the main narrative, which thankfully barely impacts the film. So I had heard, I think this was on IMDb, that uh, the walrus, that Ashiro Honda killed the walrus off because he didn't want to have the walrus in the movie. But, you know, now with time and the questionability of, like, internet rumors that could just be total bs um yeah. but uh yeah it was not the movie i thought it was going to be like a, a very very different um much more confusing <laughs> so confusing so confusing so um, confusing and we'll, we'll elaborate on that later but yeah oof. like um i am not sure the like the play out of the events in the first 10 minutes of this movie and because there's massively conflicting information in both what is seen what people are saying um just the pace of the scene the way that the scene plays out for the viewer um information on like wikipedia and wikizilla things like this it, I, I mean we'll get to that when we're going over the plot but like it is a real real challenge to like you have to you have to be paying attention like a laser on every second of what's happening or else you'll be hopelessly irrevocably lost yeah it's this is definitely where a spectacle overwhelms story and in an odd way, it kind of reminds me of Shin Godzilla in the fact that it just seems like there are too many characters to follow, uh, too many politicians and subcommittee members and representatives from the country of, uh, let's see here, Pablonia. That's apparently a country in <laughs> 1980. Uh, oh, yes, this movie takes place in 1980. Yes. It, it, yeah, it, it made in but takes place in the future of 1980. It takes place... It, like early 1979 through 1982. Yes. So as Japan somehow just stays looking the same, they don't even bother with like weird, real futuristic stuff, which I'm kind on one hand, I'm kind of okay with because sometimes that looks stupid. You know, Christopher right. Nolan didn't really want to over future things and interstellar, you know, everyone's still wearing, you know, jeans and, you know, flannel shirts, you know, but at the same time, they sp there's moments where they spend a lot of time just showing footage of 1960s Tokyo all the while, all the while talking about how it's 1980s Tokyo. Right. And it's like now none of them could have predicted the economic miracle and change that would have happened by that point in Japan's history. However, uh, 
anyone with just a little bit of imagination could have, or, you know, with the money that they were being given, could have at least... they still had at this point. Yeah, they could have just, you know, put put in a matte painting of, you know, a big the spire something with, with, like, an elevator going up and down. You know, it's like, yeah, this is the future. Right, uh, like, and, and it is, like, the focus is in weird parts for the budget because it's, like... Um, they could have done even the simplest things of just, like, slightly updating everyone's wardrobe just a little bit. Just put some weird thing, like maybe people wear visors all the time or they yeah. people stop wearing pants or whatever. Yeah. Instead, everyone looks exactly the same. You know, it's 1961, basically. Uh, but you have these lavish scenes where you've got people working in, like, headquarters or whatever where they'll be, like... 300 extras and they'll yeah. all be like you know what i mean and it's just like yeah. these giant almost like cecil b demille like dw griffith like crazily large sets with all these people who are not really doing anything not really impacting the plot that much just being yeah. like look at how much money we have look at how much money we can just blow for no reason yeah uh, like yeah. 600 extras and this and is before like, destroy all monsters where right. it's like you knew there were definitely some budget limitations on that movie but they at least tried like with the Tanks and stuff, they tried to make them look... I'm making quotations because I know you all can see me. They make them look futuristic. And the, the soldiers, at least in the background, they've got, like, weird helmets. And the suits and their guns do not look like 1960s military equipment. They at least try to right. be like, it's the year 1999. <laughs> Things right. look there's, a little different. There's an attempt. There's yeah. an attempt. And, and it really feels like that the mentality is it's like we've peaked and this is what everything's going to look like from now on there will be no changes or if there are i don't want to bother thinking of them (laughs) and let's go we're already two weeks behind on schedule because of this one five minute meeting (laughs) (laughs) so like you know but Uh. uh does have a giant walrus in it yeah. So it's, if you can find it, it's worth your time. Yeah. I'd, uh, just, I don't know. I'd say YouTube it, but there, it's hard to find just like two second clips of good quality, like monster footage anymore. You either have to watch like a 12 minute clip <laughs> or yeah. um, a three minute clip that's off like someone's television. There's no like just simple, like, here's Godzilla blowing up a building. Yeah. Golden Age um, of YouTube is over. <laughs> it's done. Right. Um, so, with that being said, yeah. um, I do think we should talk about the music uh, very briefly because the music has very little impact. But it, I think it's interesting that the music is not done by Akira Fukube in this no. movie. It's uh, another fella named Kan Ishii and that's K-A-N and then I-S-H-I-I Kan Ishii and um, it's a very mellow sort of laid back chilled out vibe that he puts down in this movie it's not percussive you're not getting a lot of like the big brass and things like that I will say though the 
beginning did remind me of Rite of Spring for some reason. It just that that's what it reminded me of. Like he was listening to that before yeah. recording. Yes. He had Fantasia um, on and was like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um it's definitely you know, a different take on things. Mm. And this is one of the only one of these films that that this guy uh, did. Uh, he had a film career uh, as a as a composer, mm-hmm. but as far as Japanese, shall we say, togusatsu films, yeah. um, you know, is rather is rather limited. Um, and as far as that, the rest of the people involved, as you said, it's uh, in Shirahanda. Um, it was based on the idea by this guy named Jojiro Akume, but it was written by Takashi uh, Kayamura, which I believe he also did Matango. Um, yeah, he yeah. was um, definitely of you know, uh, unlike Sekizawa, he seemed to dwell in kind of the darker aspects of science fiction, and you know, look. Toho is a studio, and after a while, when they, when you know Tanaka and others realize they have a product, like at other studios, they're like, okay, well, the product has to be a certain way, and there's a little flexibility here and there, but for the most part, it all has this similar sheen over it. But it's definitely the ones that he wrote were a lot darker, or seemed to dwell in the darker areas than Sekizawa's. It still wraps up in that Ishiro Honda way, you know, if we all just put our minds together, get over our differences, all that stuff, we can actually achieve great things. Um, so the overall message is hopeful, but it really teeters in, you know, kind of a, uh, the fact that like, oh, we're like a pinprick in the in the, the universe. And, you know, at any time, a big collapsed star could just crash into right. our planet and destroy everything we've built up. Right. Uh, now so um, so without further ado let's uh, take a quick break here and then we'll go ahead and and, and get into it
And now, boys and girls, it's time to dissect the plot. Yes. Uh, so 1962's Gorath, and I believe the 1964, you know, re-American reissue uh, by our good fellas at Brenco Pictures. Sounds yep. made up. So, sounds like something from Tim and Eric. Brenco. <laughs> like that's <laughs> you know that's like that's not a real company. Yeah. Um, but sounds both. Like someone who was fired by Roger Corman for <laughs> being too cheap. <laughs> um, Bren. Brenco. So the. The narrative starts off, you know, there's this standard Toho, like, space, you know, credits going in space over the stars and everything to <clears throat> the music, and it's all very well and good. But then uh, the the beginning of this film oh, yes. is, um, let's see, it, Man, a I, car I... pulls up out of a tunnel onto oh. looking over like some some water, but there's enough land also for a, a launch base, like a spaceship, like Cape Canaveral type setup. Yeah. And it's at night, and it's Kumi Mizunu. There we go. Um, <laughs> Nate brings it to my attention that we've been saying Kumi Mizunu's name wrong for five years. <laughs> <laughs> It's, we've been saying Muzano for five years. It's like it's Mizanu. Sorry, we're amateur this. hacks, by the way. Yes, we are total hacks. This uh, is what happened when two dyslexics try to <laughs> try to read and attempt bottom, anything. Right. Bottom line: if you're listening to this right now, you could do this show better than us. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it's Kubi Mizanu, and I'm sorry and again. Sorry yeah. for saying your name wrong for the last five years. And uh, uh, Yumi Shakiwara, who plays uh, Sonata, who is her Kumi's uh, friend. And she was also in, um, I, th I think she was in Rodan. I think she was the uh, female lead in Rodan as well. And she is in this, and she's with Kumi Mizunu. And they are pulling up in a really cool 60s convertible and it's at night they begin disrobing and clearly in their intent is to go uh, skinny dipping at night and this is sort of strange because it's like kind of sexy and sexy things don't really happen in these movies ever so yeah. it, I, it threw me a little bit off it was like I don't know. And this is, you can sort of tell, this is like the guy who wrote Matango, where it's like, it's yeah. a different sort of mentality, where it's like, sex is a thing that actually exists in this universe. It's not just these sterile, like, relationships of like, oh, a woman is pining for a man from afar while he's doing something 70 yeah. miles away or whatever. I think I think the, 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 the sexiest probably moment in the entire series next to this would probably be one um, uh, Ogata comes out of the shower in the first Godzilla movie. <laughs> He's like well, shirtless. It's, it's it's weird. It's weird because this is Kumi Mizunu, um, you know, in nineteen sixty two, so she's very hot. And like it's it's like someone at Toho, it's like the light bulb finally went on over their head and they're like, Hold on a tick, wait a minute, just had an idea. Kumi Mizunu is 
incredibly attractive, people are going to be watching this movie with their eyes. Wait, uh, we should do something like that takes advantage of that <laughs> uh, in, in a way that's, I don't know what's the word. Uh, I, I don't know if there even is a word. I guess sexy would be the word. I don't know. Interesting. This. Let's try it. This one time in all of these movies. Let's try sort of tantalizingly teasing a little bit of skin from this admittedly incredibly attractive and very young female. I don't know. And they. this is the one time they do this. They both start, you know, getting ready to skinny dip. It lasts for all of three seconds. And then a rocket ship takes off in the... Uh, you know, I guess a couple miles away or whatever, yeah. and uh, they both. Not uh, nothing Freudian to read in there, by the way. Oh yeah, no metaphors, no <laughs> metaphors, and um, they uh, Sonata, you know, says that oh you're, you know your your uh, husband or not your husband but your fiance um is is on the rocket and you know, good luck to him man manabe is what his name is uh, a very minor character but um so they're taking off in the jx1 rocket they're not the girls they're on land uh but they're you know some astronauts are taking off in the rocket and that's uh, radio happens to be on and yeah. doesn't it like fill fill in <laughs> Yeah. News. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're you're listening. Radio's on. <laughs> you're listening to exposition K19. <laughs> all the exposition <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so that rocket ship in the background is the JX1 rocket and uh, these are the characters and uh, <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. We need to put that in something. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> A, a radio station that just says the exposition because that's exactly what happens yeah. in this scene oh boy at least they're nice enough to do it once I, I was watching the movie um, they were expendable which is a great movie but the, there always seems to be a radio on giving exposition <laughs> throughout that entire movie <laughs> it's just like you know everyone just happens to have a radio on playing uh, Filipino music and then suddenly it cuts in yeah I mean <laughs> to be fair, they also sort of do this in Matango, where they like they listen to the radio, or like someone's listening to a song, and they switch to another station, and it's immediately talking about how the ship is lost and how people are looking for them, and it's been uh -huh. like two hours <laughs> since they've been lost. So this is sort of a trait of this screenwriter, where it's like, oh, the radio, I'll just radio. <laughs> um, they put their clothing back on and drive. Uh, drive away and um, and that was it for just a brief period of time there was like someone in charge was like oh yeah we should we should do something sexy with Kumi Mizuno except for later on in the movie but we'll get to that um, yeah. anyways so uh, they're up in outer space and and I really want to break down this scene like second by second because like they they leave Earth's orbit Yes, we see them leaving Earth's orbit. We see Earth from the rockets, the ass point of view. We we see them leaving Earth. Yes, and and then uh, the captain, who is who is like the newspaper editor dude from uh, Mothra versus Godzilla, real no nonsense 
you know, cold blooded character actor dude who's in, in a lot of this uh, a lot about of a monster films. egg. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, lose your job. Um <laughs> that dude. Uh he's also the like the main military guy from um King Kong versus Godzilla. Anyways, he's the captain of the ship and he gets like orders from someone uh which there's a whole other scene later on where it's like to try to determine who gives him these orders which is very shin godzilla-esque to me it seems as though and every indication is that the mission just started uh he's like telling people to to fasten their seatbelts and shit like it's it's this is all just happening and he gets like a, a telefax basically and reads it and it's like oh instead of instead of going to saturn we're supposed to go uh intercept this collapsed star core uh rogue rogue star is which they is what they call it right. um codenamed gorath we don't know who named it or why they named it that but whatever and at that point, there is, and he's like, okay, so that's the mission. And he goes down and he tells the crew guys that that's what we're doing now. And they make, they adjust the charts. Um, and it was really confusing to me because it seemed as though the people on the ship were somehow like audience members. And they, like, they didn't know why they were on the ship. They didn't know what their mission was. You know what I mean? And and when this thing was, like, telling them to go track down Gorath, they were like, oh, this is what we're doing. Not like we've been preparing for this for years and, like, you know what I mean? So that, that was immediately put me off balance and was like, wait a minute. Like, they don't even know what their mission is? Right. Um, and, and I guess there may have been some talk about like we're doing this instead of going to Saturn or whatever. Right. That's certainly what a lot of the accompanying materials suggests happens in this scene. Yeah. But it was very yeah. difficult to parcel out what in the fuck is happening here. You almost feel as if there's a missing scene. Yes. Or like they, you know, we're going to film something a little longer and Tanaka said no. No, cut that down. <laughs> right. Uh, because allegedly this happens after they go to Saturn. Yes, but like on their no, way home or something. Yeah, there's. I, I, you know, watching this movie twice, I just do not see any evidence of that being the case. It looks as though they left Earth, planning to go to Saturn, and then all of a sudden something comes up, and then they have to go to, um, Gorath. And see see what's up with this thing, um, but even if that was the case, the way they film it is very confusing, almost uninteresting. Normally, when there's a plan in motion in one of these films, it's very like there's a map, there's you know, and and there are a few maps here or sonars things going do do do, but it's just not. It's not comprehensible to me, the audience member. Right. You know. We're really trying. A movie like this really needs some form of visual aid, a map, or you know, the pl- or some character to say, like, in very precise detail, 
how a plan of action is going to come out. And I've said this before on other episodes, but you know, it needs to be stressed. We need a layout of what's going to happen. That way, every time something in that plan doesn't happen accordingly, that builds the tension. I.e., in Star Wars, when the trench run, when the first one doesn't go right, when you know, does the torpedoes don't land, you know, it impacted on the surface, that kind of stuff. That builds the tension because we know what's supposed to happen we were told in the briefing room that you know you have to do this you have to fly down this trench and you know it's only two meters wide and bullseyeing uh womp womp rats on your t-16 back home um that that kind of stuff is important because that allows that that gives us a foreshadowing of what's supposed to happen and when we don't see that happen then we become frightened and when it does happen we become jovial because we know that everything happened the way it's supposed to happen um so yeah we know what's happening and yeah. and we know that what's happening is not what's supposed to be happening and yeah yeah storytelling <laughs> yeah storytelling uh, you know, these things need to be seeded in. Right. Uh, uh, and it's, it is weird because that's like Honda's really good at that. Yeah. In all other like first Godzilla movie, you know, we're shown like, OK, first we're going to build a, a layer of electrical wires and then we've got artillery and then we've got this and this and this, you know, and then Godzilla walks through the 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 electrical wires and blows it up with his fire breath and right. suddenly it's like oh okay he can do that uh well then the tanks and artillery well oh no they, they they're not working either the planes no <laughs> you so, know yeah uh it's weird yeah. <laughs> um and so the this ship the jx1 goes to find Gorath, which Gorath looks like a vintage, like, 1970s, 1980s, like, Christmas ornament, red Christmas ornament with, like, the speckles on it that's, like, red and kind of, there's an illumination from, from in it, but it's it's just a red ball. Uh, sometimes it has flames superimposed on it for, you know, effect. Um, it does not make a whirring noise uh, in the Japanese version. Allegedly, in the American cut, it makes like a, a, a whining noise every time it's on screen. But I can see that being very annoying, and I'm yeah. really glad it's not in the Japanese cut. Yeah. Um, but they go out to where it is, which is some distance away, which I don't even... Who cares? And... It's, they determined that it is, I think, like a quarter the size of Earth, but between 600 and 6,000 times the mass of Earth. And I think they say both 600 and 6,000 in the, well, I mean, we both watched the subtitled version. Yeah. So, again. That could just be a subtitle issue. Yeah, that, uh. hopefully that's a subtitle issue because they, they seem to stick on 6,000 for most yeah. of the movie. A lot of sixes. Uh, in, in the numbers in this movie, possibly denoting the mark of the beast. More <laughs> on that later. Um, Illuminati confirmed. Illuminati confirmed. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get more into that on our next episode of the Godzilla Pod War Info Wars. <laughs> the Godzilla it Pod Info War Hour. <laughs> yeah. By the way, we have loads of supplements we need to, se <laughs> to sell you. <laughs> Nate, let me tell you, this, uh, we'll get to that in a second, but this, 
strawberry-flavored whey protein powder is just chased my life. I've put on 50 pounds of solid muscle in two days. Never mind. That's uh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. How can I get that same powder? Um, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I happen just to be selling it. Take care of Michael Kelly. <laughs> Klondike 555. Las Vegas, Nevada, OU812. All right, that's enough. There's so much to cover. And we, we just, there's no time. There's no okay. time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, the ship goes out to Gorath. It's super dense. And it basically, the ship gets sucked into Gorath's gravitational pull and explodes. It's very sad. Yeah. Um, and he, he does have a speech before, um, a, a second speech to the crew. Six-minute <laughs> scene, two distinct speeches to the crew. Weird. Uh, where he's like, hey, guys, we have to collect this data because it's, you know, this thing's going to collide with Earth. But, like, we won't be able to escape its gravitational pull and we're going to die. And everyone says hurrah i've heard they they're supposed to say bonsai which would make more sense but they all say hurrah instead so maybe in the cut i saw they said bonsai they said bonsai very, yeah, yeah it's very um militaristic uh, yeah and very, see very bonsai yeah and there's where the confusion comes in because i know for a fact we watched the same cut so this is almost I, like a schism in the universe <laughs> i heard bonsai i'm pretty sure i heard bonsai the hands were in the air yeah uh, Unless I just hallucinated that, but I'm pretty sure they were saying bonsai. Okay. Well, I'll go with you. Maybe my mind wasn't working. They, um, okay. So neither is the neither is the plot of this movie. So. No plot. There was a plot. Um, so then we cut from this scene of devastating destruction to a what appears to be a New Year's Eve celebration with confetti and things. However. It is a Christmas, like, parade celebration thing in the middle. Like, it's Kumi Mizuno and, uh, sorry, yeah, Kumi Mizuno. That's going to be tough. <laughs> and her friend, uh, S Sadana, Sonata, excuse me. And uh, they're walking through the streets. And, um, you know, people are singing Jingle Bells. And you can tell it's, like, not the first language, like, the... You know they 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 sing the part of jingle bells which is literally the word jingle bells but yeah. the lyrics as they go on i don't want to you know sound whatever but like it makes the singers from the chinese restaurant at the end of a christmas story look like burl lives okay <laughs> uh <laughs> and i am aware that japan and china two separate countries two separate cultures i acknowledge and respect that but as i'm just pooling from my copious knowledge of cinema like of butchered singing of jingle bells listen that's listen, that's all i got I, <laughs> christmas among many other things are just you know western influences that have been sold to japan and they've just kind of gone along with gone along with it kind of like how KFC was sold to Japan, yeah, and it was sold to them as traditional aristocratic Southern cuisine. But, but they're going, and this is has got nothing to do with the song or the accuracy of the lyrics therein. Um, they're going a, a, about it incorrectly, because what they're doing is it's a 
again, what appears to be happening is a New Year's Eve party. Like, yeah. everyone has the cone hats, they've got the confetti. There's not uh, any trees or ornaments or, or Santa Claus or any of, the, any of the traditional Christmas stuff is not yeah. in this scene. I could talk about how weird this scene is for four hours, okay? Yes. We don't have the time, but it's about to get much weirder because a person in a robot suit yes walks up uh to the girls and won't let them pass and it's a merry christmas robot because it has like merry christmas written on the back and it's it's in the design of like a old like old-timey wind up like robot boxy like box head rectangle body pincers yep. for the hands that sort of thing like Rob robbie the robot right in the vein of Yes, in the vein of, in the vein of, um, looks like a, like a rock'em sock'em robot. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's sort of like being weird and, and kind of like not, not letting the girls walk down the street, like blocking their path. And it's a little uncomfortable. And then he flips up the lid and it's, um, Akira Kobu, um, Yes. who is an astronaut in this movie. Of course, he's been in several of his other he's things. He's also a bit of just an ass. Oh, yeah. In this movie. He's a we'll he's a that. he's crazy uh yeah. in this movie and at at one point literally crazy. But yeah. um he's been in a ton of stuff. Look up his filmography. We've talked about him a lot on this he's on this the movie. Toy maker and Monster Zero. Yeah, he's the toy maker. He's the you know one of the sole survivors or the sole survivor of Matango, um, and it's sort of a, a reunion between him and Kubi Mizunu. Uh, well, I mean not because Matango is a few years after this, but same screenwriter but this takes and then place these two. Nineteen eighty, so technically, <laughs> right. And also the sleaze bag uh, screenwriter uh, character from Matango is also in this, albeit he's just like a cadet like uh yeah. astronaut person um but and I, I hadn't seen him in much else so that was worth pointing out akira kubu is like basically stalking kumi mizunu in this movie yeah. like he's like i think you're real pretty you know and like <laughs> so he eventually lets them by after he's revealed who he is and they continue walking down the street we keep hearing this uh rendition of jingle bells which is like impressionistic at best <laughs> lyrically speaking and um they i i want to i want to be very specific about this they walk into their house one of their houses um and they're both together and there's like a hundred people there and they're all kneeling and she, she they like take off their coats and there's like this huge den hall thing. It's like a hall. It's not yeah. like a room that would be in a person's house. Um, unless that person was like Howard Hughes or something. And the funeral for uh, Sonata's father is happening. And yes. Sonata just comes down and like kneels before this, this picture of her father with, you know, the flowers and wreaths and stuff around it and it's like her funeral's happening now and it, it's all this one scene and it it's like a dream it yeah. really is like a dream how did you react to this i i 
it was hard to figure out what was going on because this is like it it just the tone it just didn't work. Yeah, it was. You know, so and yeah, nuts. I think Dream is the best way to describe it, or yeah. like something out of like a Suzuki film, where like you you know, a character just like it, through going through a door, like everything, the color, everything changes, something like that. But this the thing is, this wasn't really meant to be that. I don't think. Yeah. But it was like they were just really trying to cut the talky bits out, just to get further into the action. Well, it's I like, don't know. Why even have the Christmas stuff at all? Yeah. It's like that whole scene is so weird. You could just cut to the funeral. Just cut to the funeral. The characters meet at the funeral, and yeah. he said, you know, oh, Kumi Mizuno, I, I like you. You know I've longed for you and right. uh, all, all that stuff. Like, that that would have been the perfect place to, like, have these characters meet would be at a funeral. Uh, and that would set an appropriate tone of, like, you know, we've already lost some people to Gorath, and like we, you know, this is something that we need to worry about. Um, you know, th this is something where Gorath can still be in the background, but then we have some time with the human characters to get to know them and their humanity and their feelings, their hopes and dreams. Uh, Christmas doesn't it? Right. It just it just seems it just, it's unnecessary dressing. Yeah, yeah on, it's. And you know, just, it's like, I have a good salad. You don't need to dump a branch <laughs> right. on it. And, and again, I really want to focus in on, like, this isn't like Kumi Mizunu and uh, Sadana are just walking down the street. And there's, like, three people, um, you know, with, like, Christmas stuff. This is, like, there's, like, a hundred people on screen in this parade all, like, yeah. going nuts throwing confetti, drinking. There's like all sorts of little storefronts and things. It's a, it's an incredibly busy yeah. setup. Like it must that, have taken a like very a long time. At least two days. Yes! Yes! <laughs> you know, I think it looked like it was in an in, in interior shot. Like they built yeah, all in a studio inside the studio. Like, yeah, like they fucking, they built like a district of this yeah. town. For no reason, just yes. to have this like completely unnecessary and weirdly executed Christmas celebration, to have yeah. a Kirikubu come up in a robot costume, yeah. it's like I I hear myself talking. I sound like a crazy person describing yes. it. But this is what happened. This is what happened in the movie. It's like I can I I can really only assume Tanaka was behind this, right. or, <laughs> or or something. It's, it is not since uh, Godzilla versus Adora has there been a a test of like sanity. But Godzilla versus Hedora was like a like slam bang in your face, like whoa, there's a cartoon. This is happening over here, yeah. and maybe Godzilla's you know like can talk to the guy now, and he can fly and use a jetpack, whatever. This is much more subtle and like just sort of like you know, kind of passively kind of coming over you. It's like, oh, yeah. Well, the characters this giant are basically Christmas playing thing. it straight. Right, yeah, yeah. It's like, you a, know. And there's a robot, and now she just walks in the door, and she's at her father's funeral. Yeah, this is all normal. And everyone's playing it totally straight, and you're watching it, and you're like, the only conclusion is that I'm crazy. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Um, now there are several scenes with many, many characters that I think Nate and I can really just distill for you uh, simply by saying the information that was obtained by the astronauts in the JX-1 yeah. Yeah. Uh, was received here on Earth before the JX-1 was destroyed by Gorath. And Gorath has been determined to be a threat. It's going to come by uh, Earth. I think it's going to miss Earth. That's the thing. It's like it's not going to... Well, they say this. it's on a collision course or whatever, but they also give very in-depth uh, slideshow presentations with like map painting artists and stuff's rendition of even if Gorath doesn't hit Earth, its gravitational pull is, is such that it will yeah. kind of destroy Earth's surface and pull the oceans off the surface of the planet and uh, things like that. There is one thing I did want to say, which that one of the slides in this like meeting presentation thing that they show uh, showed Earth with like a new atmosphere just of like garbage from Earth, which I yeah. found oddly like terrifying and sort of haunting. Um, yeah. I don't know if you felt that way about that. These movies do tend to, as cartoonish as they can get, sometimes just the ideas they propose. You know, I mean, when you live in a universe where, uh, you know, monsters, can, you know, when Anguirus can just pop out of the ground right. at any time or where there could just be a, mo you know, somehow it just lulls you into a universe like this. And it does become kind of terrifying. Um, yes. And Gorath, oddly enough, does seem in some ways kind of plausible. Just something from space coming through our atmosphere not being guided or anything it's just passing through because it's a big old rock Thanks. and just destroying everything in its wake um so yeah there there that briefing did kind of feel very uh it it showed it it, ra it at least showed some stakes yeah it, it brings to us unlike the speeches in the first half of the movie this is actually like okay this thing can cause some damage. This is what type of damage it can cause. We need to stop this from happening. Right. So I appreciate it. this is again a sort of map, you know. Yeah. So you have the Death Star destroys Alderaan. Right. We know what it's capable of. <laughs> or the Star Killer base destroys the resistance uh thing i've already forgotten everything from uh, the force awakens <laughs> it's a great movie it's just as good as the old ones um anyways <laughs> i like the last jedi we've talked about the last jedi in detail um yes. anyways so and so you get this one scene of like oh this is a normal scene from a movie again you cut directly to like akira kubu and um Kubo, rather, uh, yeah. Akira Kubo and some other guy, like in at some training facility, uh, and this scene is just bizarre as all get out because it's like well, they decide, uh, like our current administration, to you know expand their space force, um, and uh, you know to stop Gorath, yeah, um, and um. And while, while training, I, I guess that like they, they feel like they might be put aside. So they hijack a helicopter to go 
visit their boss. Yeah, Akira Kubo, and yeah. like they're they're floating around in zero G, like him and another cadet yeah. uh, at this enormous complex, and then they hear that the captain's back and they're they're like running through and there's like some other guys who are in like a psych ward that they cut to for a second who are being evaluated and then they escape from the psych ward and then they're running across the thing and they hijack a helicopter and you're like this scene right this scene couldn't get any more baffling yeah and then they start singing in like full-on like uh, it's a musical like um Un or diegetic music comes up like it's a musical. Or yeah. is that undiegetic? I don't know. And, and, but it's and, the one where it's like it's a musical and and, yeah. and music just comes up to accompanying characters singing on screen. So you know right. what I'm talking about. And That's diegetic or non diegetic. I forget. It's been twelve I think, six, eight years since yeah. film school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's non diegetic where it's yeah. like it just comes it's for the viewer's benefit. But yeah. like the reason why we're talking about this and like part like is because it's so fucking weird. It's because yeah. it's, it's like there's no other scene like yeah. this in another Godzilla movie where no. they just break into a song from a musical. Yeah, and like maybe, they're maybe really at the going of for it. The tango kind of, but they have the radio. Yeah. Yes, so. yes, they have the radio, and the radio segues into the score. Yeah. But yeah. in this, it's just fuck you. These weird characters who we kind of know who Akira Kubo is have just run off this base. We don't know why they're training. We don't know who the captain is. We don't know why they're stealing a helicopter. They're now in the air going someplace to talk. Yeah. I think to argue for their jobs, to argue that they should be on this mission uh, is what I could like. They're already doing great at doing that because that's (laughs) apparently what you need to do to get a job at the Japanese Space Force. Right. They're not Um, all immediately arrested. It looks like they're flying over Nagoya, maybe? Maybe. Let me me again point out the fact that, again, this movie is supposed to take place in 1980 – and they're showing lots and lots and lots of shots of contemporary Japan. Right. right. Um, so just to add to the more confusion, the 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 <laughs> exacerbation of uh, confusion. I'm not even making sense anymore. The, right. the- <laughs> I mean, it could be Tokyo, um, but I only say this because they show a tower that looks like the Tokyo Tower, but the buildings around it are very very small. And yeah. I know at that time, even in 1961 the buildings were already starting to get sort of big around Tokyo Tower. So I think it may be Nagoya. I'm not sure, though. But it's just like, again, it's like we take yet another diversion into like this travelogue thing to accompany this musical number where it's just like, I wrote down in my notes, am I going insane (laughs) at this point? Like, have I cracked and I'm just watching, (laughs) like... Yeah. Things happen on screen. What am I doing now? What is, like what am I doing? Why am I doing this to myself? Um, so <laughs> they go. It, they it, argue, to, I guess, to get the job so that they can be on the mission to go. Yeah. Not to do anything actively against Gorath. Just these are the heroes of the movie. Yeah. And it's just to collect more information and do math in space yeah. closer to Gorath. Because they find out later... Um, as their, as the big wigs and uh, uh, Takashi Shimura and others are discussing a plan for Gorath, 
uh, while drinking Johnny Walker Red Label, <laughs> a nice. true symbol of wealth um, and class, um, they, they decide to um, pull all of Earth's resources together to build rocket uh, rockets at the, on the Antarctic to jettison Earth away from Gorath's path. Like, they yes. have to jettison it further enough out of its original orbit so that way Gorath will pass far enough so that way it, A, won't collide with it, and B, won't affect the, gravi the gravitational uh, Earth's <laughs> yes. gravity. What am I saying? What am I saying? Yeah, and... It won't mess with Earth's water. Oh, my God. Like Our precious water. First the Mysterians tried to take our women, and now Goroth wants to take our like, water. <laughs> and, again, this could this could be, like, the end of the episode, and, and we could start another episode just talking about this plan, yes. about how this plan is a trillion times more destructive than Gorath bullseyeing the Earth. Look, neither one of these... And let me just restate it for those of you who are like, wait a minute, what? The yep. plan in this movie is, and this is determined at this, uh, they have a United Nations uh, uh, scene, which is just a celebration of pidgin English and yep. uh, really uh, something to be to behold. Um, but at the end of this plan, yes, they, they pool all the resources together and they decide to turn Earth into a rocket ship basically yeah. you like to to make the term spaceship earth a reality and yeah. actually turn the planet earth into a spaceship via jets that are put into antarctica uh south pole uh 500 meters beneath the surface which is like i i can't even like there's so much i want to talk about it's like all the diseases trying to get into Mr. Burns' body through that little doorway, and they're just yes. being choked. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, all just yes. like, like all, yeah, all, can't, logic, I, all, 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 all the illogical ideas are coming together, and right? somehow it's just. There's just, a there's a focus. I guess yeah. if I had to say one thing, it would be that this would not work. <laughs> this is not a good plan. Um... There is a Twilight Zone episode specifically about this called The Midnight Sun, where Earth, oh Jesus, gets dislodged from its orbit, and half the episode it's going towards the sun, things are getting hotter, and then there's another thing that happens at the end, don't want to spoil it or anything, but like, definitely go watch The Midnight Sun, it's an amazing Twilight Zone episode and streaming on Netflix, but like... That that episode is like why you don't want to fuck with Earth's orbit at all. Look, the, the Earth is perfectly in balance with the sun, with the moon, which the moon is destroyed haphazardly at the end of this movie, just like it's a thing. It's just like, oh, Gorath yeah. got the moon. And it's just like, no, no, no. Like, if if that happened, even if that happened, we'd all be fucked. Okay, yeah. because the moon controls the tides and like the seas and stuff. There is so much. Look, I'm not a scientist. I, I don't uh, I don't consider myself a, a scientific person or whatever. But even just watching them 
like discuss this plan, I'm just like I'm aghast at how inconceivable uh, it is in its execution and how impossible it would be to do. Number yeah. one, and if by some miracle, and it would have to be a miracle, uh, that we could dislodge ourselves from our orbit, how that would be a totally disastrous thing and an irrevocably like we'd be dead. We would yeah. be dead. <laughs> like so. Nothing left. <laughs> nothing left. And that, from this point on, is the main thrust of the plot of Gorath. Is oh, we gotta, we gotta move ourselves out of our orbit. This is like, wow. Okay, so I'll talk about for another hour. So, uh, any uh, anything to add, Nathan? I, I, I don't I think know. You've just summed it up. It's like you know, look, we we don't you know we don't go into these movies expecting logic, uh, and, and you know it, it's science fiction with the capital F. However. There is an amount of believability that does need to be put into these movies. Like, rules and regulations still have to be put in place. Um, you know, whether it's Star Wars, Star Trek, Godzilla, you know, there there are certain things that have to be in place um, to render it somewhat believable or compelling. Uh, and, yeah, at this point, I'm just like, you know, uh, I'm... Armageddon is looking like a better and better movie, which I hate to say. I really hate to say that. This makes Armageddon look like Deep Impact by comparison, which is... If you remember in Armageddon, they had miniguns, like computer-controlled miniguns strapped to like the space capsules when like Steve Buscemi went soft insane at the end of that movie. Yeah. I don't want to talk like about dry Armageddon. Doesn't but... what? Yeah, he, okay. I mean, it's Michael Bay, so every yeah. surface gets dry-humped by something at some point. Um, but, so, I don't know I don't know how we continue forward at this point, other than we cut um, to more singing. <laughs> more singing, yeah. Uh, UN Council meeting, the phrase discharge vibrators popped up. <laughs> the country of Pablonia is represented. We all remember Pablonia from our geography class. Right, an insult on or an assault on our sanity. Yeah, uh, and and they they agree to this plan, and they have uh, a big like celebration uh, thing with more singing, like another musical number. Yes, um, like a big party, like a dance hall thing, like almost, but it's, there's like a bar there too. And uh, Torahata is is a captain. I think he's he's the captain of the mission leading the JX2 thing. And he comes around and tells all the cadets that not to get too drunk or something. I just wanted to mention that Torahata is in this movie. Yeah. Um. And. Uh, oh, and we need we need to bring up the fact. I need to bring up the fact <laughs> that uh, uh, before this. Um, Ikkyo Sawamura plays a taxi driver in this movie. Yes, say your piece. <laughs> he also <laughs> plays a taxi driver in Atragon. Now, Atragon was made the year after this, and this movie takes place almost 20 years <laughs> after Atragon. What I'm saying is, is he playing the same taxi driver 
did they shoot these at the same time? And they were just like, oh, hey, you're you know playing a taxi driver in this. Keep that uniform on. We have to shoot uh, a scene for Atragon, uh, you know, in a couple hours. Uh, it, it's just like, why? Or was why? there, Nate, was there a third option I'm thinking of here where they brought this actor in. They're like, we need you to be a taxi driver. And you have yeah. two scenes in this movie. And the first one, you're doing this. And the second one, you're saying this. It doesn't sound that related, but you'll see when the movie happens. And uh, here you go. You're getting paid for one movie. Here you go. And they just filmed the scenes for both movies and didn't tell this guy. Yeah, something. <laughs> but it's it, it just weird. And, like, you know, he's a character actor. He's used to doing stuff like this. I mean, he has, you know, bit part in this, bit part in Atragon. He has a bigger role in uh, Kurosawa's Yojimbo, where he plays like the corrupt official or police officer or whatever uh, of the town Toshiro Mufuni wanders in. But um, yeah, it, it's just like, is he just typecast as a taxi driver in two movies <laughs> two years in a row and one's taking place 10 years in the future? But anyways, sorry, that's my no, rant. No. Moving it's, on. It's a valid observation. It really is. Uh, and... I, again, I think they tricked uh, Ikkyo. I think that yeah. they, may, they may have tricked him. They may have tricked I, him. I, I think that's uh, what we're going to have to go with. They tricked him. They lied to him. They lied to his face. Um, so, let's see. More singing. Uh, and then we have the uh, second scene in which the producer, the writer, and the director realized that Kumi Mizunu is incredibly sexy, yes. uh, where they have uh, her character in her apartment um, taking a bubble bath, which, again, yeah. very, like, th this just doesn't happen in these movies, where they have, no. you know, a, a, yeah. a female who's basically being used as an object and, and and like she's being subjected to the male gaze which is yeah. never happens never no. ever happens in yeah. these movies the, the only tits if i may dip into the vernacular the only tits <laughs> we see in this series that i'm aware of are the fake boobs in um uh, Terror of Mechagodzilla, when what's-her-name is being operated on, the um, Katsura, when, she, yeah, Katsura. when she's being operated on, her Lego body is being uh, <laughs> uh, re rearranged or whatever, you, you get you get, you get get some, like, oh, plastic boobs with nipples, there, there we go. Um, I mean, but other than that, I wouldn't say Legos, it was more like Capsella, it's motorized. <laughs> Okay. Well, the Capsella, Mega Blocks, and it was a mixture of stuff. Right. I'm sure there was a Playmobil stuck in there. That was probably why she kept going crazy. There was a, yeah. Right. But again, Playmobil pirate that, stuck in. That was the only time we saw the depiction yeah. of the female body in in yeah. a specific uh, context, and and not sexualized at all. Yeah. Just like, oh, she has her shirt yeah. off. I and then guess there's, we have to show again this. the suggestive scene, which I enjoy, where Ogata comes out <laughs> of the uh, shower in the original Gojira shirtless, and who knows what he was, he and Emiko were doing in there, <laughs> uh, probably discussing their finances. Exactly. Um, and so, okay, Kumi Musno, who is a very beautiful woman, don't want to beat that dead horse. Don't want to get into a weird like. Willem Dafoe from autofocus territory here, <laughs> but <laughs> she's, 
she's very attractive, and this is a good scene. Uh, and then uh, Akira Kobu appears outside of her, her apartment and is knocking on the door and keeps knocking like an idiot. And she gets out of the tub and you see her putting on this like coat. She's like ruining this beautiful mink coat. Yeah. Um, and she goes over, opens the door and it's like, you're a jackass. What are you doing here? And he's like, Kumi Mizuno, I don't, don't you understand? You're my girl. I only got eyes for you. You know, that whole thing, like weird weird like, nice guy bullshit curvy, like creep did clay aiken write this scene you know <laughs> uh, uh i don't like the song invisible is horrifying i don't know if you've listened to the lyrics lately i know it's been 10 years i'm aware of that but go back and revisit the song invisible by clay aiken it is disturbing uh but anyways akira kubu like kumi mizuno it's just a normal person in her apartment taking a again luscious well-deserved bubble bath and she's like get out of here you weirdo like i'm i'm still mourning the death of my fiance basically i don't know if they were actually engaged but the guy from the jx1 yeah is like and she's got his picture and she holds it up and she's like look yeah. that's the guy i was that's engaged to and he died, like, you know, yeah. a couple months ago, and I'm absolutely confirmed for still in mourning. You yeah. you creep. And Akira Kobu just comes up to her, he's like, oh yeah? What do you think of this? Takes the picture and goes up to the window, a la Elaine Bennis taking George Costanza's wig, and basically does the same thing. He's like, I don't like this, and here's what I'm doing about it. And he throws... <laughs> the picture out the window and it's like at that point I, like that's what you call the police that's when yeah. you're like this guy is a maniac yes. and, and and tonally this is all played for laughs this is all like oh you know he yeah. likes kumi mizunu and like this is how he's courting her and isn't this like wacky and it's like this is assault yes. <laughs> this is like jesus christ like this guy belongs behind bars. Yes, he you know, like be an astronaut. Yeah, or he's Supreme like court justice, right? He's or a Supreme Court justice. Very good, uh, and like this is the hero of the movie. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I guess I mean there is another main character. There's 47 main characters, yep. but the actual hero of the movie is uh, Ryu. Ikebe, uh, he plays a guy named Dr. Tazawana. He's an astrophysicist. There's many scenes where he does many things. We're not going to touch upon any of them during this recording or proceedings. And he may not even be in the movie, de depending on which version you're seeing anyway. So yeah. who cares? Um, but for, for my money, this, this relationship between Kumi Mizunu, or this stalkership between Kumi Mizunu and, and Akira Kobu is like... Right. So much more fascinating than anything else that happens with the humans, other than this insane, impossible, and disastrous and baffling plan to turn our planet into a spaceship. <laughs> Which is just like, again, and we haven't even gotten to the giant walrus yet. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. we gotta keep it moving. But that scene yeah. was just crazy uh. to me. Just crazy. Um... 
1961, I guess. Who I I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, Jesus. Uh, anyways, yeah. okay. So then you cut to a a like a five minute montage of all of the nations like coming to the South Pole to like build to turn the South Pole basically into a thruster rocket, basically. Yeah. And, and um, this it is a spectacular. You know, I don't think like this is really beaten until um, um, War of the Gargantians. Um, a few years later, but this is like I think up up till then, like probably the biggest use of like miniatures. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I think I will I will say definitely this is probably my favorite like construction sequence of yeah. of any of these films. It's definitely the longest because it, it seems you know, wasted. It, it seems, seems, it like seems wasted, yeah. and it's weird. The pacing of it and the and the way it plays out is also very weird. But like the because they know there is no monster showdown except for the thing with the walrus. We'll get to that. Yeah. But like there is no traditional scene of like the monster coming in and blowing up, or even like kind of fighting like planes or whatever. So they have more time and more resources to kind of go into the construction of these of these jets. Uh, of these thrusters that are again buried in the surface of the earth and will turn earth into a rocket ship um so like they can go on longer and it's and again hitting on the thing it's like the time was there the money was there subaraya was was there making sure stuff was done right and it's it really is why why you go back and why you would find this movie and why you'd watch it other than to like test your sanity but like you know it's really beautiful it's it is beautiful yeah um but again getting into the weirdness so they have this scene where they build everything and everything seems to go pretty good you know pretty like smooth and the sequence kind of ends and they they bring in people to like run this place like they have the headquarters everyone's dressed in like not unlike uh king kong escapes where everyone's kind of like got their snow gear but they're underground or whatever um to 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 run the 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 south pole base and they you get the feeling it's been a couple weeks or whatever and they've completed construction and then there's like an earthquake and there's a giant like there's a collapse and it destroys like i don't know 60 percent of the base or something mm-hmm. something yeah. like that and they come out and they, they they look at it and they're like oh well this is yeah this is very unfortunate we're gonna have to pick an alternate site and start from scratch and rebuild the entire base yes. and then they do they do just that and they have a second montage right in a row and I, I wrote down like Stallone levels of montage abuse. Like like <laughs> this is like this is where the movie <laughs> buttered up against like Rocky Four as far as like using montages as a form of like padding. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's like, just like you, you you just had this montage. And it's it, like it was a waste of um opportunity. Because that really would have been an opportunity to build more tension with the fact that, oh, this thing is getting closer and, oh, we're nowhere close to be, you know, ready. 
you know, it's going to be down to the wire before we get right. those thrusters moving. And we only have, you know, we need to start a countdown, something right. like that. It was like in a mobile breeding city or whatever it was changed to. Uh, <laughs> that thing we discussed about um, in that movie, one like the harpoon that that you, there was a moment where they could have like really built the tension with like the fact that the harpoon was not ready, uh, and then they just completely didn't do anything with that. It's just like, oh wait, nope, it's ready now. Right, Hit the, make the harpoon work. Right, and, and, you know, and, get just missed. Yes, precisely. There's and and there's a specific bit of dialogue where they had the opportunity to do that, and then be like, oh my god, it's going to be a close call now. But instead, they do the exact opposite, and they're like, oh no, we still have like a year, <laughs> and it's like, oh okay, so why is this scene even happening? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, from just like a three-year-old's like standpoint, like, yes, I like seeing stuff get destroyed by an earthquake for no reason, but, like, it's it doesn't, like, help the story. It's just, like, a thing that happens. Yeah. It's just baffling. I don't know. And, yeah. and, then, and then they have, like I said, the same exact montage again, except it's like at night now. So they film different shots. It's new shots. But it's shots of the very same processes and techniques and tools and construction equipment being used. And, you know, it's uh, very reminiscent. What, what this reminded me of was uh, the beginning of the first Pacific Rim movie where they're building, like, the wall, the anti-monster, yes. anti-kaiju walls or yeah. whatever. And I would not be surprised if Guillermo del Toro saw this movie and based up some of that stuff on it. Because some of it looks like the pre-make of Pacific Rim level of that. Because it's just, I mean, this operation is huge. Yeah. Um, it's huge. Uh, <laughs> bigly, <laughs> bigly, uh, and it's just tremendous. Um, so they they finish it a second time. They turn on the rockets, and it quote works unquote. I mean, it yeah. begins pushing Earth out of its natural orbit, dooming us all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to either freezing to death or boiling alive, depending on if we go. <laughs> towards the sun or away from the sun you idiots um but <laughs> it, it, you know the rocket starts going and uh, everyone's happy uh jx2 Kubu goes into the jx2 they uh fly out to gorath because it's been a while since we've seen gorath and they determine that the calculations are incorrect for the amount of distance they have to move earth because gorath keeps hitting comets and hitting things and is growing bigger yeah um and absorbing not unlike you know like the blob or something or more like a like a snowball that's being pushed downhill yeah and it's so it's getting bigger so the original calculations that the jx1 made don't work anymore and like they basically they need to build more rockets um <laughs> when in doubt yeah and a karakubu or rockets um confirmed sex pervert akira kubu uh at this point and it's 1962 kumi mizunu i mean it's like i don't blame the guy but jesus christ dude y your game is like <sighs> anyways sorry the point uh, is no means no and he no means no so no he means no don't take her picture of her lover and throw it out the window this is our hero 
this is the yep. movie saying cheer for this guy. Um, so, and then he, because he like looks directly at Gorath, um, he gets amnesia or whatever. So he's in like a catatonic state for like most of the rest of the movie. So he can't like, you know, assault Kumi Musuno anymore. Thank God. Musunu. Sorry. This is the only way they could, you know, keep him away from her was to just put him in a rocket. Put, yeah, put him in a rocket away from Earth. So he's and they come back and but not before the JX2 tells them, hey, you need to build even more uh, jets to make Earth go even further out of its orbit faster. And um, this is, I think they they have an, another like separate sh- scene where they sh- turn on the Earth thrusters and it makes us go even faster. And there's another celebration scene, and then the giant walrus attack commences um, with Mag- Maguma. Um, now. Yeah. And again, this is another scene that really could have helped to build more tension. I kind of, it wasn't what I expected, you know, because I expected the walrus to be on the planet. But they did come up with an interesting idea like, oh, all this rocket stuff is damaging the Earth and awakening a monster. So they're trying to save Earth. And yet they're also damaging the 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 environment that this you know great beast lived in. And it's fighting against it. And it's like, that's an interesting concept. And that could have been used to build a lot more tension. But yes. no, it's just like, eh, it's a big walrus. Uh, yeah, it's real big. <laughs> well, you shoot it with the laser beam. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <And> he, <laughs> Good night. And, it, and again, it's so weird because all the stuff we were just talking about, like they build the first base and that's, if look, if you're gonna have a giant walrus show up and be a problem, and then you also have this scene where like the first base gets destroyed, it's like just make two into one, man. Do the math. To yeah. have have Maguma destroy the base the first time, and that's why they have to rebuild it on a separate site. That yeah. way you can have a kaiju destroying shit. Like yeah. okay, to be clear, Maguma does like destroy like two sort of small look they look like observational based buildings it's not much of a you know kaiju destruction sequence as far as those things go it's it's pretty minor Uh, again wilford brimley did more damage in the thing than this walrus (laughs) did in this entire movie wilford mustacheless wilford brimley (laughs) in the thing it's a separate person legally uh is is destructive force beyond that of which is known to man uh but maguma like okay yeah we're gonna have a big walrus in the movie have him be like have like the plot have them more conflicted about trying to kill the walrus maybe this would be a movie where i could see the scientist being like i don't want to kill this thing because you know it's not its fault we're here and we're trying to save earth and we're technically trying to save it as well. It just is an animal and doesn't understand. Right. And it's like, you know, really, again, the writing could have been, for whatever reason, could have been so much better and deeper and still have been filled with action and miniatures and things that go kablooey. Uh, but no. 
Yeah, and it's... We were denied that. It's just weird, because it's like, yeah. okay, so Maguma shows up, not the best-looking kaiju ever. It it really looks more like the, the kiss-lip cuttlefish from Space Amoeba, like that generation, that level. You would never yeah. know that this company had just put out Mothra and right. was about to make, you know all these yeah. amazing it, designs because it, it looks a step like above gamera it's a step above gamera it's 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 a step adjacent to like sid and marty croft yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> like it looks like it, that it, it should be a background <laughs> character in lidsville yeah <laughs> yes yes it's just sort of like okay i mean are you gonna try to make something that looks like a walrus that's fine and so maguma's on the scene for a bit and he's doing, and, uh, you know, and then they jump in a ship that has a laser fitted to it for some reason. And they shoot it and cover it with rocks because they want to, like, save it. They don't want to kill it outright, even though covering it with rocks in a landslide would also kill it and actually yeah. lead to a much longer and more agonizing death. Yeah. Like, this is supposed to be a group of scientists here. Right. Uh, but they go down, they land, and then Maguma shoots out of the the rocks and is, you know, again, and um, uh, they're like, all right, back in the ship. And they jump back in the ship, take off again, and then they just shoot it with the laser again on the ship inexplicably. And this is like, uh, not a spaceship, but it looks uh sort of like a proto version of like the carrier ship uh from aliens like the drop ship because it's got those cool like turbines that can kind of like move either vertically or um move horizontally or whatever um turbine jets i should say and um they shoot maguma and it just falls over dead and it's it's a kaiju that is easily killed by one ship by four scientists (laughs) So that's it's barely a kaiju, and it's barely in this movie. in In the Japanese cut, it's barely in the movie. Yeah. Now we'll get to the American cut at the at the end because there's a lot more information there on that, and that's a yeah. whole other ball of wax. But just you know, for for some reason, if you were in Japan in March of 1962, you came to see Gorath. Maguma is only in the movie for like three minutes. Yes. Uh, so weird. <laughs> okay, Kirakubu gets amnesia, comes back to Earth. They build more thrusters, kill Maguma, and they turn on those thrusters. We talked about that already, I guess. Um, and Gorath comes towards Earth. Uh, it hits the moon, mm-hmm. which is, uh, again... That's bad. I mean, yeah. I guess as soon as Earth left its orbit, it like the moon would either fly off or come and, and hit uh, Earth, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, or, or, you know, go off on its own adventure, like in Space 1999. We all remember that show, that classic <laughs> show. Nate, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh... Gorath gets very close to Earth, uh, and you get sort of the 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 payoff, or like you know what we're what we're all really here for, which is the sequences of the oceans 
rising and destroying Tokyo and destroying mm-hmm. uh, I that well they flood the the rocket thruster base um, but the thrusters keep going um, and they destroyed the JX2 and like that base I think it was like they were just like let's destroy every area that isn't the rocket thrusters just because just for the hell of it you know like we built them so let's blow them up which is i i love that mentality yeah (laughs) um and they bring uh the 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 other astronauts bring a kirikubu to kumi mizunu uh you know aiding and abetting at this point in an attempt to get him to remember you know who he is or whatever and he he looks at her, and then I think he looks at the TV that's got Gorath on it or something. Maybe he doesn't look at a TV. I don't know. But the, he has a flashback to when he was close to Gorath, and he wakes up, and mm-hmm. he's his old self again. So watch yep. out. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh. Hey, 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 hey. Um, which I thought – one line that I thought was funny was like, oh, let's um, – why don't we just instead of you know bring bringing this guy to this this woman he's trying to force himself upon let's he has a sister let's we can we could bring him to his sister and maybe his sister will help him you know wake up and they're like oh well she moved it's just like what <laughs> this is like can't you just look up where she moved to like what yeah. I don't understand, but no, it's just like it's yeah, just so you, you can, can have all of Earth's resources to build rocket right. propulsion for the Earth <laughs> they, itself, turning it into a space station, essentially. But they don't. But you can't look up his sister's address, right? That's, they don't. Uh, they don't have the new phone books, so no, I guess. No. <laughs> it's nineteen eighty. You know, <laughs> it's, we've only come so far. Yeah, it's nineteen eighty-two. So. Um, uh, so and again, it's just you know so you can have that sort of weird i don't know if they kiss uh i don't think they kiss because no one ever kisses in these movies except for kumi mizunu in uh invasion of astro monster kisses glenn or whatever yeah. um but this is a different movie and um they just i think they hug or something or like she takes his hand in some symbolizing that i guess they are like she she yields to his constant assaults oh. and she's she's giving yeah. in she's like i guess he's alive technically he may be a sex pervert but at least he's still alive which is look man again and this is the last thing i'll say on it because this is like we're getting in this is like 45 minutes of the episode but like she's kumi mizunu in 1962 she could have any man or woman for that matter that she wants yeah. uh so anyways but it's that's the plotting of the movie. So, and it's it's Chinatown. What can you do? That sounded yeah. <laughs> racist after it came out of my mouth. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's Tokyo. What can you, what what can you do? <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I meant it's like you know, yeah. wash your heads of it, walk away from it. Yeah. Um, and yes, the Earth. There's this clock. There's like this old, like old school clock that's on the wall. That's like, you know, I th- I guess it's like the countdown to Doom clock, Doomsday yeah. clock. And it's like if they can get Earth far enough away, because it's like that's the point that Gorath is the closest to to Earth. And yeah. um, and they, yeah, they Gorath misses Earth. And I mean, 
they look out the windows at the end. Like, I got some bad news for these people. They go outside. I guess they're in the top of Tokyo Tower uh, yeah. with, like, the 500 people from Tokyo who are selected via some lottery to survive the flooding <laughs> or something. Then we never <laughs> see that scene. Yeah. And they look out that, over... Yeah. <laughs> they look out over Tokyo. It's underwater now. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just see a couple of tops of buildings and stuff. Yeah. Something and, out of Evangelion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, well, the Earth is destroyed, but we'll rebuild now and we'll make an even better Tokyo. And and I think that's that's pretty much the end. And like you see yeah. Gorath going away and then. And, and, the end. Dr. Tezawa also is like talking to another scientist real quick and he's like, oh, wait, you know what? I I guess now we're going to have to put Earth back into its correct orbit. Oh, that's going to be tough. <laughs> or whatever. In the sequel where they put all the rockets onto the North Pole. But it's like, they're very specific about this movie. They can't put rockets into the North Pole because it's just made of ice. Yes. There's no actual land there. Yeah. So like, what are they going to do? Like, they're fucked. And it's like, you, so you have, okay, and then that's the end. And it's like, yeah. so you have two enormous projects of, number one, rebuilding most of the major cities in the world that have been destroyed by um, water rising. And yeah. then also, like you said, as, as ludicrous as it is, building jets in the North Pole to push Earth back into its regular orbit. Those are two, like, either one of those things is, like, probably not going to happen. But, yeah. like, both of them? No. Like, this this, this is not a good ending for the... Yeah. <laughs> like, they are dead in the water, literally, yeah. figuratively. They're floating Again. in space. You can't just dislodge a planet from its natural orbit. It, it, no, it, it's a planet. It's not a uh, beach ball at a fish concert. You can't yeah. just knock it around wherever you, you want. The reason and, life on this planet exists as we know it, you know, provided, you know, <laughs> you know, it wasn't really the, uh, the engineers or whatever from Prometheus or Alien Covenant, whatever. It, you know, it seems to be the fact that we just had the right, you know, we had water, and the planet was a certain distance from the sun, and it, we have a moon. We have there, there's some there's something to that to why life on this planet exists as such. Right, and um, balanced. And, right, and even the most minute shifts. Yeah. Well, and of course life, we're overanalyzing this. Yeah. Of course, I know, we're, but like it's no like one sea life dies. You know, when the water temperature, you know, not that global warming exists at all. But, um, you know, steep temperature <laughs> rising just uh, just a little bit seems to cause, like, the death right, of right. And many animals. Again, we're, we're obviously overanalyzing it, and obviously, like, we're not supposed to be thinking about this stuff. And maybe this is, like, okay, if this movie would have come out in 1915, when people didn't know dick about, like, yeah. science... Yeah. Or like eighteen fifteen, yeah. or seventeen fifteen. If George Milliers had made this movie as a sequel to right. A Trip to the Moon, right. I would have totally then, been down yeah. for it. But like nineteen sixty one, nineteen sixty two, what? 
Well, like, yeah. when, when you... This is only eight years before we land on... Or no, I... not eight years. A few more years before we land on the moon. And again, and, and this is two years after the Midnight Sun episode of The Twilight Zone, which very clearly states, like, you... No! You can't move Earth! Okay, so that's... That's that's it. That's that's all we're gonna say about it. Um, so that is the Japanese version of Gorath. Now, the uh, it was it was sold. Uh, the the rights were purchased um, uh, by a uh, a studio that we we referred to earlier, um, Brenco Pictures, and Brenco. They sort of had um, some different ideas about about uh, Gorath. Um, they cut a lot of stuff. Um, one of the the main things was they tried to cut the entire sequence um, with Maguma. Well, first they had test screenings. They had a lot. Of, they had like two years of test screenings and and doing cuts and trying to get like the best version of this movie. Mm-hmm. Early on. Um, they had all the stuff with Maguma, but they superimposed, they had an optical printer or whatever, and they put like a sort of a fog over Maguma and they switched out its, its monster call with Rodan's roar Uh and to make it seem more like ferocious or, or like less ridiculous. And, um, so there was, there were cuts like that that existed they they were only made for like test audiences so it wasn't a mass-produced thing but technically they existed at one point they probably don't exist anymore but that was a very that was a an attempt to 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 keep that sequence in there and um but brenko was not a fan of 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 maguma uh they referred to it as wally the walrus <laughs> uh, mocking him and deservedly so. Like this is a kaiju that deserves to be mocked. Um, and eventually, they just decided to. And this is also a very like confusing decision. They they cut around um, Maguma, but they kept that sequence intact. So instead of just cutting out the sequence altogether, which you could, you could cut yeah. that whole sequence totally out of the movie and it would it affects nothing um instead they kept the sequence in there but they just cut out all the shots of maguma so now the ship is like going around and like reacting and like shooting its laser to something that isn't even there it's if you can find this piece of film which i i've I've found it last night it is uh, it it really is it makes you feel like you're going insane when you're watching it because it's the most like people they're saying things that don't make sense in the context and it's it really is nuts so that and that was the cut that they eventually they were like okay there you go and they released it like that and they cut a lot of other stuff they um they didn't like just the general overall look of uh, Subaraya's, you know, special effects. So they covered everything in like a weird fog and haze and like kind of darkened everything to make it, I, I don't know, it's just so that you couldn't see it directly or whatever. And it's like, 
at that point, it's like, why did you even buy it? <laughs> like, yeah. Why, why did you even want to release this movie? It seems you, like a lot of extra work trying yeah. to polish an already smelly turd. Yeah, yeah. They released it a couple of times. Um, they also put it out on a double bill with, um, I think, the H-Man or uh, one of those other... Uh, human Vapor? Or, human, uh... I think, yeah, yeah, Human Vapor. And um, and it never they never ended up making their money back uh, from it. No, oh, no. <laughs> um, from from their initial investment, they also had like a uh, like a five minute lecture about astronomy or whatever in in just a cut that just played at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That was like played one time, but we know of. We know of it. It existed. Um, so that and that was the start of the movie that was just sort of like laying the groundwork, which I'm sure some people probably appreciated because you you don't know what's going on. If you yeah. derived all of your knowledge of space off of this one movie, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> like, good luck with the with the medication and the therapy. Um I, th- I think this movie does deserve like uh, a Blu-ray release. Oh, with, absolutely! With commentary by a drunk Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know what his drink of choice is or whether he drinks at all, but I'm just—I see him more of as a bourbon man. Just him, bottle of uh, sweet bourbon, talking about everything wrong with this movie. I, I want that to happen. <laughs> look, I, I know we're like we have torn this movie to shreds, but there are still. Like it's still worth it just for the destruction sequences, oh, obviously, yeah. and to see Kumi Mizunu in something else. And there's a really cool scene in, uh, where Gorath goes near Saturn and like slowly, and I mean very slowly, sucks the rings of Saturn off of Saturn, yeah. which, out of context, just as its own as a piece of whatever of art, is probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen in one of these yeah. movies. And looks totally convincing and is awesome. Um, so, like, I wish everyone listening to this could see this film out of, like, morbid curiosity or, like, you know, the Godzilla junkies who are just looking for, like, the final fix <laughs> or whatever. Or almost the, the, almost the final fix uh, of, of, like, the, the, the last stone unturned or whatever. The problem is, it's unless you have a region-free DVD player, um, you really can't watch this legally um, in the United States as of 2018. So this is something that would be cool if, like, uh, some some company picked it up and and released it because I do think there is an audience there, and just for the the oddity of it it's 100 percent worth your time if you can find it sometimes it pops up uh online for 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 a while in on whatever like vimeo or daily motion or or even youtube um but like it's it's worth it's worth tracking down definitely um it's just part of the experience and it's you know good you know it it's from a time when these movies were big. Yes. One, they were popular enough that you could warrant a stinker like this and still keep going. Like, right. this wasn't like the nail in the coffin. Right. Far from it. Like, this, you know, was just one of many films being made at the same time. 
you know, Shiro Honda making, what, two to three films a year sometimes. Not always uh, tokusatsu films, but sometimes, you know, family dramas or whatever. This is just, you know, one of many, many films to be made at the time, but by the same group of people. And it's just fascinating uh, when they get it right. And it's also fascinating when <laughs> they yeah, get it right. absolutely. It's, it's a... It, fascinating artifact of what they thought the audience would put up with and what they thought the audience knew about astrophysics yeah. um, at the time. And maybe yeah. they didn't know anything about it. I don't know. Yeah. I think they did, though. Um, maybe. <laughs> so if you, can, if you can find a way to, to watch this movie by hook or by crook, you know, technically, legally, we can't endorse you doing nefarious means to, to see this. But, you know, if, if the opportunity becomes available, you know, you're adults, you can make your own decisions. Yes. <laughs> um, we can't make those for you. We can't make those decisions for you. Um, I You'll will say <laughs> um, Gorath has also appeared uh, in in sort of the connected Godzilla-verse on a couple other occasions. Um, first of all, in Godzilla Final Wars, Gorath is sort of like the ticking time bomb clock of like the aliens are like, oh, Gorath is coming. That's why you have to put us in control because it's coming towards Earth. And that's yeah. why they, you know, that's why the humans have to hand over control to the aliens and, and give them their monsters or, or whatever. Um, and then it turns out later on that Gorath is actually sort of like a shuttle that is transporting Monster X to Earth. Mm -hmm. A.K.A. Kaiser Ghidra, A.K.A. Riggins, um, and I think Godzilla very handily destroys Gorath uh, in that movie in just like one thing of its yeah. <laughs> of his power breath. Yeah. So it's the 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 on screen conflict between Godzilla and Gorath is is about fifteen seconds. Yeah. I think he puts up just a little bit more of a fight than the American Godzilla. Yes. Zilla. Um, so Godzilla, you know, Gorath is, if this had happened again, it'd be no threat to Godzilla at all. Godzilla would take care of business, uh, yeah. and he has on film. Not only on film, but also, uh, and I wanted to, really wanted to talk about this, the, um, there is a Godzilla pachinko machine that uh, Nathan and I have, have, it has come to our uh, mutual knowledge that this exists, and this particular pachinko machine is just a very brief refresher because we don't have time to totally get into it, but pachinko... So, okay, Japan has a ruthless gambling addiction, uh, but gambling is illegal in Japan. And in order to get around this, to, to, to feed their, their needs, their forbidden needs, they have these things called pachinko bars. And we've talked about this all on the show before, but just I think it's like several years ago. So just to retouch on it, Pachinko, it's not unlike Plinko from The Price is Right. You know, it's like a pegboard that you put like a metal ball on and it'll maybe it'll go into various holes and get you points or whatever. And at the Pachinko bar, you win prizes. And these prizes uh, are usually worthless. They're like alarm clocks, like radio clocks or whatever, like a shoehorn. I don't know. So something, something that's just like junk, cheap junk. Then... You take the prizes and you go next door to a place where you uh, turn the prizes in for money. It's like a pawn shop. So they have places next door that are like pawn shops and you immediately trade the prizes in for cash. And that's how they kind of get through the loophole. 
and still say that, oh, yeah, we don't have gambling here. But they do, and it's a real problem. Um, so they one of these Pachinko machines was a Godzilla-themed machine, and this... Godzilla Pachinko machine has a has as many of them do uh, has a video screen affixed above it and they actually filmed new uh, suit man in suit footage for this uh, Pachinko machine. One of the opponents that Godzilla fights is uh, first of all he fights uh, Gid or Gigan mm-hmm. from Final Wars and I believe they just used the same suit from. Final Wars. So if you can track this footage down, and it is on YouTube, at least the making of uh, of it, you, it's like new footage of the Gigan suit from Final Wars and Godzilla fighting, mm-hmm. which is like totally badass. Um, and then one of the other things, because it's not all new live action stuff. Some of it's CG, and I think one of the yeah. CG battles is like a CG Godzilla, and he looks like you know the Godzilla from like. Uh, you know, versus Megaguirus. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that that era of of Godzilla suit. Um, it's him fighting Gorath again, yeah. and Gorath is like, you know, the super bonus prize ball or whatever. <laughs> like, if you get it, you get like a million you, points. But when you think of Gorath, you think of being a winner, <laughs> right? And you know, Gorath is essentially just a big ball, anyways. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think he also fights. I think Suit Godzilla fights the Suit Anguirus, I believe, as well. Yes, yes. They um, they reused because there's they didn't have enough money to build new suits for it. But I think they touched up a lot of the a lot of the suits from uh, Final Wars. So yeah. if you are still a still listening and b <laughs> <laughs> uh, have the free time, go and check out Godzilla Pachinko Machine. On uh, on YouTube and and you can see sort of new new suit footage and it's it's pretty cool. Um, but that was that was one of the only other times Godzilla fought, fought Gorath and once again yeah. very one sided battle. Uh, <laughs> as as fights with uh, spherical objects tend to be. Yeah. Not a whole lot you can do there from a grappling standpoint. Um, but. <laughs> You know, there you go. <laughs> there you go. It happened, folks. It happened. You um, can't do anything about it. It's there. Uh, it's a historical fact. <laughs> in which addition, also wanted to sort of continue to comment on Maguma's uh, appearances in the mm-hmm. uh, Godzilla universe. So the only other time Maguma is 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 mentioned or comes up is not in the film itself, but in the uh, like related secondary like press release promotional materials for Godzilla against Mechagodzilla mm-hmm. it is revealed that Maguma um exists in that universe or existed in mm-hmm. that universe um but it, it makes no mention of the Gorath incident so it's uh-huh. like just the stuff with Go- with Maguma happened and it happened around 1961 in again in that universe yeah. Um, which is certainly when the movie was being made and right before it was, was released, but doesn't make any sense. Like it's supposed to be like yeah. 1982, so right. that's weird. And yeah. uh, so you well, have also uh, in that movie they kill off you know that 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 whole those two movies against Mechagodzilla and SOS. You know they 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 killed the one of the Mata Mata turtles from. Uh, <laughs> Space Amoeba, just you know, cause they just needed to get rid of they, right. they, 
They don't even they they kill him off screen. Like you just see the dead body there with like you know a paw print in his neck. You know, gash. Uh, so disrespectful. Yeah. Um, but Maguma doesn't even get that. It's just like in in a pamphlet that Toho handed out. It's like, oh yeah, and I guess Maguma was around in this yeah. universe. We're not going to talk about it on screen. Yeah. So uh, you know, so you have it's weird. It's you have the universe. You know, not unlike the the Connors or Roseanne, you where you have uh, season nine of Roseanne where Dan was dead and Roseanne was there. And now yeah. you've got the Connors where Dan is alive, and but Roseanne is not there anymore. Spoiler um, alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. I didn't say if she died or not. I haven't seen it. Um, but like, or like the Halloween movies where like the, the, the chronology of that universe where Laurie Strode is like dead in the H2O universe, but mm-hmm. now she's back and alive again in... Uh, H4O, which is what I'll call it, because um, <laughs> that's what it is. So yeah. it's like another one of these weird things. Was like, okay, Maguma happened in this universe, but Gorath didn't happen. So this weird sort of confusing picking and choosing of like, okay, guys. <laughs> uh, but uh, such such is the plight of Maguma, uh, you know, uh, for for what it's worth. Um, so uh, I think that's that, that is, is pretty much getting close to wrapping things up for us. Uh, as far as like Godzilla news, you know, there hasn't really been much else as far as like the teaser trailer for Godzilla Planet Eater or whatever, the, the final in the trilogy of the animated uh, films. And we will yes. certainly give you uh, our thoughts on that. If we uh, make film. it that far. <laughs> if we make it that far. Uh, once <laughs> that is released. And also, we are, uh, I think we're only about five, between six to five months away from, from the release of um, Godzilla King of the Monsters at this point. Because I believe that's March 2019. Yeah. Um, so two, obviously, giant Godzilla releases, mm-hmm. <laughs> as it were. Yeah. Uh, uh, definitely at least all uh, over us, whether we yeah, like it or not. <laughs> definitely on the radar. Um, coming up, so still a very exciting time to be uh, to be a G fan, um, yeah. and and but but there hasn't been any new stuff released since uh, since July for for those movies as far as like trailers or things like that. So um, one I think one image of Mothra was leaked from like the, the design of the action figure for it for the new one or something, and it's just yeah, yeah it looks like a moth. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Maybe that's why they call it Mothra. <laughs> um, so that's that's that. Um, you've been listening to the uh, Godzilla Pod War Hour. Um, my name is Michael Kelly. My co-host, as always, is uh, Mr. Nathan Allen Bear. Uh, yep. You can find us on Facebook at the Godzilla Pod War Hour. Also on Twitter at uh, Mike Kelly at Godzilla Pod War. Um, Tumblr, who knows? <laughs> I don't. I think it's out there still. Uh, no, there's you know, no. flo- floating around like Gorath <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the reaches of the dark web. <laughs> pray that it's out there. <laughs> pray, pray that he's out there. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we're on iTunes. Uh, like us, subscribe us. Uh, you know, 
get those reviews out there. If you think that the show has fallen on hard times and that we've completely lost it, uh, let us know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> be brutal. Be brutally honest. <laughs> we can take it. We're adults. Yeah. Yeah. Much like the Antarctic in this uh, film, we, we will take it. We will <laughs> take all the thrusters. <laughs> right. All the thrust. All of the thrust. It is maybe some metaphors going on after all in this movie. Just all of those long, drawn-out shots of the, all the thrusters going at once. Maybe there was something happening there. I yeah. don't know. Uh, Nate, any final thoughts on Gorath, 1962? Uh, <laughs> is it, what is there to think about? Uh, this happened. Uh, Precisely. That's about it. Uh, you know, the... They were going to make a, sing- a sequel, Gorath of Khan. <laughs> but the- <laughs> I will drive SETI Alpha 5 right into the planet. Um, it is interesting you mentioned Star Trek because there's a fellow by the name of John Lucas who was a writer on Star Trek who uh, wrote, I think, the dubbed version of Gorath for the Brenco release. Ah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is there is some Star Trek crossover here. But there we go. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure he just did that on the weekend for yeah. <laughs> like gin money or something, <laughs> or maybe just a bottle of gin was thrown <laughs> at his head and he caught it. It's like that's your payment. That's what you get paid for this. <laughs> oh, it was bad too. There's like four people who did all the dubbing for the entire movie. Yeah. Like what? When you listen to enough kung fu films, it's clearly the same five New Zealanders. Doing, doing all every kung fu movie, whether it's Shaw Brothers or Golden Harvest or, you know, something from you know Taiwan. It's just like, oh yes, it's. I, I recognize that guy's voice. He's not only playing five characters in this movie, but he's also playing five different characters in another movie. Right, right, and. But the uh, if uh, a teacher of mine in uh, film school pointed out that at the opening of. Um, Sonny Chiba's The Street Fighter. I think it's one of the police officers is talking. This is in like the first two minutes of the movie. He He's clearly being dubbed by two different people. Right. <laughs> like they, they couldn't be bothered to just fill in that first extra, that, that first, you know, five seconds of dialogue. They had to just be like, he's a dangerous killer and should be left in prison or something <laughs> like that. Like that happened. It's like it's clearly two different people dubbing the same person. Sorry, minor rant. Nate, I don't think you're crazy, and um, you know, I believe you. But um, generations anyway. don't. I think the future generations are not going to understand this because you and I grew up with like heavy dubbing. That was the thing. Like, and we long for the day when we could see the original Japanese cuts, because we'd read in, like, what little books and information online, whatever, you know, that there are Japanese cuts, and they were longer, and and had more stuff, um, you know, and make more sense, and there's no Raymond Burr, and and, and all this stuff. Um, But we had to, like, be satisfied. We had to satisfy our needs for men in, you know, rubber beating each other up. (laughs) (laughs) Which in no way affected my taste <laughs> at all. And we had to be, you know, satisfied with what we were given 
the VHS tapes that were dubbed, or later the DVDs that were just rips of VHS tapes that were dubbed, pan and scan. You know, this is great now we live when you can get all the camera movies on Blu-ray for like $15. They're all in widescreen. They've been properly color temperatured and in the original Japanese with good subtitles. Millennials don't know shit. They don't know what we had to go through. To all right. So, count millennials. Uh, <laughs> I don't know anymore. Uh, and that, that was uh, Nathan Bear uh, fully accepting his fate as becoming the uh, old man in the cave. Yes. <laughs> um, Listen waving, to me. I have stories. Waving a stick. I understand. You listen to me. Uh, <laughs> Shelbyville. <laughs> Shelbyville. <laughs> Shake harder, boy. Uh, 